Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and this week I have a very special guest. It is Phil Bulger, a defense wargamer who is otherwise very cagey about what he does. But what can you tell us, Phil? Hey Liz, great to be here. Well, I can tell you that what I do is make defense game or defense analytic games for the Department of Defense and for the Department of the Air Force specifically. And uh, it's a it's a pretty interesting job, I think. So, how did you get into a job like that? Well, so there's no actual pipeline to get into defense wargaming. It's something that a lot of people much smarter than me, such as uh, Professor Sebastian Bay, who I know has also been on the podcast, uh, he's got a lot of, of thoughts on this. Um, but mostly I just copy his homework and then say this is what I, this is what I think, because he's thought about this a lot more than I have. However, there's no real pipeline. Everybody comes to it through different lenses. Um, for people I've worked with, the average path is that you spend time in the military, you leave, and then while your clearance and contacts are still active, you go into either defense contracting or government service specializing in wargaming. For me, I spent five years in the Army. I, I graduated from college in 2010. Uh, I was commissioned in the Army, and after five years, I left. I uh, did a little bit of work in the civilian community, and in 2017, I got a referral from one of my friends who said one of his mentors was looking for somebody with my background. He mentioned to me that, Phil, I know you like hobby gaming. I know you spend a lot of time in history, and uh, you check all the blocks that they're looking for on this. So I applied, and I started working in defense wargaming. But again, there, there's no one pathway. We have pulled people from academia, and we have uh, we've pulled a lot of people that stay in the military for 20 years and then retire and go straight into wargaming. Those are usually people with strong planning backgrounds. So you have a background as a hobbyist. What, what did your gaming life look like before this? What, what were you into? Well, I'm in the mix of, uh, of really all games. I, I like board games. I like tabletop RPGs. I like video games. If it's something where I can sit down and either have a narrative experience or have a competition, uh, I'm pretty happy. As far as how did I seek it out? So when I was in the military, I had a weekly RPG group. We played Shadowrun and Dungeons and & Dragons and Delta Green, which is my favorite RPG. Uh, but we also would play board games in the times that we couldn't run an RPG. And this is when I got introduced to the modern world of serious wargaming. This was like 2013 or so. Uh, my first, what I would consider serious wargame I played as an adult was GMT's Fire in the Lake, which is their coin entry on Vietnam. And when I played that, I realized I had found something I loved and I wanted to know more and I wanted to figure out what else could I get. Um, it wasn't long after that I got a whole bunch of other games and was constantly pestering people to play. When I left the army in 2015, I moved to Illinois and found a, a friendly local gaming shop there where I basically would either join games that people had going on that sounded exciting, or if I could offer my own games with somebody to play. I met a few people there and formed a full, small circle of gamers, uh, both war gamers and non-war gamers. And then I was able to go out and, and, and play with them basically whenever, but I found that I still wasn't quite satiated, and this coincidentally was the time that I picked up Solitaire Gaming on Tabletop. Um, yes. It, oh, yeah. It's, uh, the, the first Solitaire game that I played was Danverson Games' Thunderbolt Apache Leader, and I played it because I always liked the A-10. The A-10 is one of my favorite aircraft. I think most people that have been in the Army have a soft spot for it, and the fact that there was a game that literally featured it in the title uh, I was in, and I was hooked. I got the same vibes from playing Thunderbolt Apache Leader that I got as a kid playing the video game Desert Strike. 
It's just you and your close air support aircraft against the world, against everything they're going to throw at you. See how well you can do. See how long you can get your pilots out. So that's uh, solitaire gaming became sort of a staple for when my, my friends couldn't play. Um, once I got this job, my recreational gaming has dropped off somewhat. somewhat. Uh, I don't think most people like to go home from their job and immediately do the same thing they do with their job for fun. But even on top of that, it's more just, it's harder to find, it's harder to find folks that have the time for it. When I was a little bit younger, uh, most of my friends didn't yet have kids and had more of an open schedule. So scheduling three hours for a game wasn't a problem. Now, now I got to call like a month in advance or I may not get the game, but we're trying to, we're trying to get around that in some creative ways. Uh, one of the things I do right now is I play a lot more games on Vassal since I can find people somewhat more easily for it. And several of my friends that I can't otherwise see will play board games with me on Vassal. And I still play a lot of video games as well. Excellent. I, I approve of all of that. I think it's so funny that you mentioned Thunderbolt Apache Leader because I love that game too. Uh, but in my own walkthrough of it, I refer, it's like, oh, look, it's a plane. <laughs> it's a helicopter. I have no clue, but I still <laughs> think the game is fun too. <laughs> so... Do you find that your hobby experience actually did translate well to professional wargaming or did it not end up mattering all that much? I think it mostly translates well. There's some things in professional wargaming that aren't really, you're not able to replicate easily as a hobby gamer, at least not as a typical hobby gamer. Uh, one of the ways I would put it is in, in order to do the same sort of thing about professional wargaming, if you were about to crack open a game featuring armored combat in the late 80s, before you ever read the rule book, you would order three or four books about each side. You know, one about the Soviets, one about the U.S., one about the British Army of the Rhine, what about whatever other forces are there, to first get smart on that and then be expected to brief on that. Because in defense wargaming, that's the case. A general in the middle of the game can look over and ask you, hey, you've represented this piece like this. Why? And you have to be able to explain, well, sir, we believe this piece acts like this because A, B, C, X, Y, Z. And if you don't have all of your stuff together on that, the they know. So you have to do a lot more research going in. But that said, once you actually start getting to running a game, the hobby experience absolutely transfers over. The most invaluable thing you can get from hobby gaming that transfers directly into wargaming is an understanding of how game mechanics are used to abstract reality. The idea of this is an action I want to take in reality, and in reality it would have 50 people spread across three locations doing this. Now I need you to make the same thing doable with one person in five minutes. Do you use a dice roll? Do you use a hand selection? Do you use a card with text on it and a choice to play the event or ops points? Um, any number of these things are potential valid abstractions of, of whatever that real world activity was. So understanding how you can get to that is very valuable. This leads me to a question. I've talked to multiple professional board gamers on this podcast at this point, and I feel like there's a difference between games that feel more like hobby games with, you know, rules and pieces moving on the board, and then things that are more like matrix games that more closely maybe resemble role-playing which kind of game are you designing and i don't i don't know how much you can tell us but what what kind of examples could you give that aren't going to get you in trouble sure uh so I, I do what's known as agile gaming which is small scale games they usually run three hours to three days and usually have participants ranging from five to fifty 
uh, most of the larger games have participants ranging from 30 to well over 100 and take multiple days to run at a minimum and weeks or even months, depending on what models they're running in the background. I tend to design games that are based around what can I teach people to play in three hours. The absolute most important thing for not just wargaming, but any concept is the ability to explain it to people. If you cannot explain it to people, regardless of what kind of a good idea you have, there are too many barriers for this idea to be communicated. If there's too many barriers for it to be communicated, the idea doesn't go anywhere and the idea stagnates. This is a, a very real problem, not just in defense, but across the world for how do you take something very complex and make it simple and easy to explain. So that eats up a lot of my time. With that, I have made games that do resemble hobby board games. Uh, I can actually say, I can't tell you what the game was about, but I used several of the systems found in Thunderbolt Apache leaders, such as the idea of aircraft cards with weight points and assignable weapons. Uh, I then had to modify some other things and add things that Thunderbolt Apache doesn't have. Um, to get folks to talk about how hypothetical systems would work in the future. That one played like a board game. Uh, we, instead of dice, we had a machine that rolled multiple dice on multiple tables to quickly adjudicate it. But otherwise, it was designed and played as similar to a hobby game. By contrast, I have done some that the game mechanic is very simple. It's pick a course of action. It's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure where... We talk about a scenario up on the slide, three things pop up with the fourth thing for add your own. Is there something we didn't think of? And the players say that and they pick option one and we flip to slide 16, which has the results of option one and say, did you expect this? Why or why not? And force them to sort of talk about it and justify their answers. This is really good for qualitative data and quick play, but it's not as good for quantitative data since you can't really do a lot with the numbers and something as freeform as that. Huh. I also think it's very interesting talking about how how to get an idea compressed enough to be teachable and to fit into a certain time period. When you create defense war games, do you ever worry that you're leaving something important out? Or how how do you balance the need for someone to learn something crucial, theoretically, through your war game with your own bias in terms of what you cut and what you think you can fit? That is a terrific question. So the first way we do this is by being honest with our players. Our saying in our office is that we will never get you a 100% solution. Our goal is to get you a 70% solution quickly rather than a 90% solution in six months. But that 20% that we're not going to be able to give you may be significant, and it may in fact be the core of the problem we're trying to solve. So we lead with that up front and encourage players to mention if they have knowledge of systems that we chose to bypass or simplify, that they speak up and say, hey, the way you've done this is not right. The second way we do this is we do our homework and we don't just do our own research. We talk with subject matter experts. So let's say we're making a game on advanced missile systems. If we're making a game on advanced missile systems, we're going to talk to people that have shot missiles that are similar, either in a training environment or in combat. We're going to talk to people that design these missiles, so your technologists, scientists, engineers, folks at the research lab, people like that. And we're going to try to talk to somebody with knowledge of intelligence for how does the enemy see similar systems to this, or how do they approach that. And we're going to get input from all of these folks and square it off with our own internal research and kind of figure out what matches up and what doesn't to try to get the best possible picture of what we're representing. But 
even after that, we still default to 70%. My team is game designers. We are not all defense professionals. None of us have a long time in the Department of Defense. Again, I was only ununiformed for five years. So we always see to the experts if we recognize that somebody with the training who's done this for real comes in and says, excuse me, it's not like that. We prepare to adapt, which is the final sort of ingredient in our secret sauce. We don't get super attached to any one mechanic we put in the game. If somebody from the community that, that we're trying to represent says that this is so wrong that it's going to impede the player's ability to learn, we're always open to changing that mechanic. Now, we try to get these folks in to talk to us before game day. We've never had to make this change on game day. That would be terrifying. But we could theoretically do it. Oh, man. How long is a typical development time for one of your games? How much work goes into that three-hour or three-day experience? The The short answer is it depends. Our goal we were given by the, the general that was running the office when we showed up in late 2018 was to be able to turn and execute a war game in two weeks. There have been some that we have been able to do in two weeks, but there have been many that we have not. Especially if we don't have the research done prior, that's easily what takes up the most time. If we first have to teach ourselves about what a system is or what this concept is they're talking about, uh, that, that just eats up a lot of time since, again, this is sitting down with experts, this is combing through data, it's very involved, and we have a relatively small team. So if we have to do research, it's almost always going to take longer than that. The shortest development timeline we've had is we have a few game engines that we use that people ask for again and again and again. So we just modify it a little bit with whichever whatever lessons we learned from last game and are ready to go. And those do fall within the two-week dev timeline. But I would say overall, I think our average game probably takes a month to a month and a half to design. And I would also point out for folks in the hobby world who may be raising their eyebrows, I would point out we don't have to worry about art. We don't have to worry about any kind of prototyping materials. We just make stuff on cardstock. We don't have to worry about supply lines that go international or shipping rates or crowdfunding or any of that. Literally, when we have what most people in the hobby world would consider an initial prototype, we start putting that in for playtesting. And if the playtest is successful, we just execute with the prototype. Our games do not look pretty. I need to emphasize that. We are, we are not paid to do pretty, but we are paid to do quick. So I know that you probably can't tell a whole lot about who's paying you, but from what I understand, you work for a group that designs bespoke war games that answer specific problem asked by clients. Is that about right? That's correct. Yes. So how do you attract clients and... You know, do you have to spend a lot of your time convincing people of the worth of what you do? How do you how do you get out there as a as a war game designer that somebody could hire for this? So most firms have a team dedicated to this, um, and with defense contracting in particular, they tend to assign you to whatever contract is there. So that that's really more on the business development side. But where I'd like to take this question in a different direction is in whatever office you're in, if you are aggressive, you're still going to need to seek out clients. So and th this is not necessarily clients that pay you. This is more, does the contract get used? Are people aware of your capability? I'm a very big believer in responsible spending of taxpayer dollars. So I, if the, if, if the taxpayer has found it necessary, or if the government has found it necessary to commit taxpayer resources to what I'm doing, I want to make sure that everybody that could possibly use this resource is where it exists. So we spend a lot of time, at least we did pre-quarantine, basically walking around our office and just making small talk with people, trying to figure out, hey, what are you guys doing? 
man, that seems like a pretty complex concept. Um, would you want a war game about that? Like, we could make you one. Here's a timeline. Here's what it would cover. Here's what it wouldn't cover. Would this be interesting to you? And we've gotten a mix of, yes, we'll take you up on that. And then they follow through. They go through our official folks, and we start making a game for them. And sometimes we get, no, I don't really think that's what we're looking for. And honestly, we're fine with that, too. It's just as valuable to learn that something is not going to be good to be wargamed, or it's not going to be able to be wargamed efficiently, as it is the lessons you can get from a wargame. Because inevitably, any concept that stays around the DoD long enough, people ask, was this wargamed? And sometimes the answer is, well, sir, it can't really be. Not well. What kinds of questions do you think a war game can answer? And then are there some topics that you think that a, a game just can't capture adequately? That is a beautiful question. So I will tell you that it is my personal belief that war games are best at capturing human or human-like decisions. I say the latter because as you start to talk very far out about AI, you get things that are technically not human that can make human-like decisions. Games are really good for looking at that. Games are really good for trying to figure out, I have X number of panzers on the Eastern Front. How do I commit them up and down to try to make Operation Barbarossa a success? You'll get an idea of sort of how you arrange them and what tactics you use and how that might be valuable. What games cannot capture, at least not well in my opinion, is the details to the nth degree. If I want to know, for example how a certain missile would fare in different air conditions. I could make you a game about that. It would be Missile Flight, the game. And you would try to maneuver the missile around however we decided you were able to do that. And different things you steered it into would have different impacts. And then maybe there would be some system that the enemy had that would interfere with it. And we'd go on and on and on about that. But it wouldn't really be a very good game. And you could get way more detail out of a mathematical model that you could tweak the levers on that much more easily since there's no human decisions involved, or at least few human decisions involved, that kind of problem is really better left just to a series of math models, I think. I think the other thing that games are not always great about is I don't think that games ever provide a definitive answer. I think games like models are, to quote the mathematician George Box, uh, all models are wrong, some models are useful. It is the same with games. No matter what you do, if you are determined to pick apart a historical game, you will find some flaw in it. You will find something that you don't like. You will find that the designer has thought that a unit would be statted differently than you would stat it. And he's using this based off of some book that you haven't read, and you've read books he hasn't read. And the combination of the two means that you're not ever really going to fully agree. But what you both may be able to agree on is if this assumption is correct, this is a way this could have gone. I think that's very important because I get nervous when people hold up war game results and say like, this is it. This is definitive proof. N no, not any more than the weatherman saying he thinks it's going to rain tomorrow is. He's got some pretty advanced models and some good radars that tell him rain is probably coming in, but there's a reason it's a 70% chance and not a 100% chance. Fair enough. What can you do as a provider of a wargaming experience to make sure that your clients get as much as they possibly can out of playing your designs? I think the single biggest thing you can do is ensure that you are striving towards their analytic objectives. I think that this is important because there is a tendency as people design games that you may stray from what the core objective was that brought you to the game. You may get enamored with a mechanic or enamored with a system that you want to display in the game. And it comes to the point that 
you may spend more time on that, whether you mean to or not, than you are still answering the original analytic objective. I think that's got to be paramount. And if you get to the point where you can't answer the analytic objective, or you realize the game is not going to do that, you owe it to the sponsor to say, hey, we're not going to be able to make this happen. I also think the, the other thing you can do on execution day is good facilitation. It's good crowd control. It's make sure the right people are talking, make sure everybody feels encouraged to talk, make sure that there's not one person who's furiously taking notes in the background that seems very cautious to actually say anything. You want to try to give people platforms. And in a hierarchical organization like the military, that can be difficult. The guy that comes up with the coolest answer, the best new TTP, may be a brand new second lieutenant sitting in the back of the room. And he may be too scared to speak up in a room full of colonels and generals that, if he says the wrong thing, could potentially end his career. So you have to provide a platform for folks to be able to give their ideas. For us, because my team is not military, we can kind of take these responses anonymously and put them into the findings afterwards, and we've done that. If people are reluctant to speak on the spot, we encourage them to reach out and email us afterwards non-attributionally. But I think that non-attribution is, is key. That makes a lot of sense. And you're talking about the findings. How do you collect data from a war game that you have facilitated? And how do you present that data in a way that is maximally useful to someone who might be reading it after the fact? So data capture is done depending on the war game. If it's largely one of these talky war games we talk about, uh, it's just going to look like running notes like you might take in class. That's just, you know, so-and-so said this, but then the person from this organization said this. But then after that, this, this argument was brought up and nobody was able to say anything. In uh, something that's much more, in something that looks more like a hobby game. Like there's nothing, if I take out my copy of Thunderbolt Apache right now, there's nothing stopping me from opening up an Excel and detailing every move I make from every SO point I spend to every munition I expend to whether or not the munition was successful against the target. I can detail all of that. And we do. We call these move sheets. We have move sheets where we write down what counter number goes after what counter number with what stuff and how effective it was and any player comments they had on that. Or we usually like to ask the players while they're doing this, hey, why'd you assign this to that? Can you tell me about that? And then write down their notes along with that. For some of the super quantitative stuff, we will have an automated system that will capture the the moves, the the system is made and then just pitch that right back out. Do you add any of your own interpretation to the data that you collect or, you know, give some sort of conclusion to your findings or is that something that you leave to the client? The short answer is it depends with some things. The team is just not comfortable enough commenting on it. So we sort of give the raw data and then say, Hey, you guys wanted to write this up. With other things that we are more comfortable writing about or have more time with or that the client is comfortable with us writing about, we are asked to take a look at the data and tell us what is found. Um, that's within the purview of what we do, but we always default on, again, if we think our interpretation is going to push it away from this analytic objective or that it's going to be doing homework that the sponsor really should be doing, we will decline to do that and just share the data. That makes sense. So. The world of professional wargaming, how, what's the state of the field right now? And how can we get more people aware of and into it if it's such a hard field to find on your own? 
Yeah, that's, that's another great question. I don't really have a good view from where I'm at. I'm kind of in one foxhole and I have my own biases for why I believe one thing or another. But my impression is that overall, the state of professional wargaming is it needs help. There was a great article by Dr. Yuna Wong, uh, I think last week or the week prior, where she kind of examines what is the purpose behind defense wargaming and asks the questions that defense wargamers must satisfy. One of them being is defense wargaming as it currently stands satisfactory for the whole DOD. I don't think anybody really has an answer to this. I think most of us have different guesses, uh, but I don't think there's one authoritative answer, or if there is, it's in a paper that I haven't been able to read. Um, I would like to get a definitive answer for that, but in the meantime, I will say my opinion is that it definitely needs help. And it needs help precisely because what was alluded to. A lot of people don't understand that professional wargaming exists. Uh, I, I didn't. When, when I was a cadet, I would have loved to know about this, but I didn't. I didn't learn about it until after I was out of the army, that this was a function that the government paid people to do. And the case of Title X wargames, we were actually legally mandated to do. So defense wargaming is not going anywhere, but we have to do a better job about telling the broader world what this is and how it could be useful. The second thing that I believe would be assistant is taking a look at hiring practices. I have a lot of respect for my military service. I'm very proud that I was in the army. I'm very proud that I deployed and got to see combat, but I don't, uh, I don't claim to have all the answers and I'm not certain that the combined uniform and veteran might of the military has all the answers. I think that there is a good chance that there is some guy sitting in his mom's basement right now that has played, or, or girl for that matter, that has played Next War Taiwan 50 or 60 times and has figured out every single unit and has identified the best possible ways to put everything he has. I would think that defense is interested in talking to somebody like that, but we have no idea how to reach them. And we have no idea how to get them through the numerous HR barriers that would prevent prevent them from getting one of the jobs with us. So I think we need to look at both branding and considering to a degree hiring practices. And so although you are a professional defense war gamer, you have also dabbled a bit on the hobby side. So you said you didn't have any design credits, but what have you worked on? So I got to work on World at War 85 with Keith Tracton at Locked and Load Publishing, um, the first version of which came out, I believe, last year, which is just Storming the Gap, which is this is a Cold War Goes Hot uh, full the gap scenario, and I helped build the timeline for that, as well as did some initial work on some of the expansions that will be coming out in the coming years. So Keith was a blast to work with. I got to go see him uh, up in Pennsylvania. Very smart guy, very dedicated war gamer. He's played everything, everything you could ever name, Keith has played it. Good guy to design, and uh, I, I enjoy the game as it came out. And then I also got to create a battle pack for Dan Versen Games' Warfighter World War II, uh, I did the Tarawa battle pack, and in something that confused at least one Kickstarter backer, I actually told, I, I chose to take the point of view for the Japanese for this one. Ooh, say more. Okay, so um, I'm of the belief that very frequently we don't understand our adversaries. It's it's not we being the DoD; it's we being people in general. It is human nature. It's sort of our inherent in group versus out group to not spend a lot of time trying to learn about what the other guy thinks. We know that they're bad, they're scary, they hate America, whatever terms you want to use, they're pretty easy to hide behind. And it leads us to not understand why they did it. 
the big question I had about Japan, and I started down this path probably four or five years ago, is at the end of World War One, Japan doesn't look a whole lot different than a constitutional monarchy in Europe. Yeah, they still have brutal colonial possessions. I'm not suggesting that they're innocent, but they're not inherently a bloodthirsty, crazy, genocidal junta, which is what they become in the 30s. So I really wanted to learn, like, how does this happen? How does a country go from being pretty stable, pretty okay, to suddenly death for the emperor is the only thing that matters? And I got a chance to explore a lot of that. And it led me to an appreciation for what happened on the Battle of Tarawa. So the Battle of Tarawa was a shellacking for the Japanese. The U.S. Marine Corps on the main islands and the U.S. Army on some of the peripherals just beat the tar out of them. It was a bad, it was a brutal fight. The Marines didn't get all their landings right, and they learned a lot of lessons from Tarawa that they would apply later on in the Pacific. But the Japanese started with something like, I think it was 2,000 SNLF troops and additional 2,000 combat engineers and laborers, and they ended with 14 people. And Ooh. I really wanted to tell that story of sort of why were these guys so determined to fight to the end? And even knowing it was impossible, why did they do that? So the battle pack very much has a feel of desperation. Like you, you never have enough stuff. The last mission, you get to choose one guy because everybody else is dead. It's, um, it's incredibly challenging. Uh, and I, when I got feedback from players, that, that was what they, they said was, this is challenging. This is a little bit claustrophobic. And my comment was exactly, because that's how I imagine it must've felt to be one of those guys who knew that the only way off the Island was to die. And why this is valuable to, to us in 2021 is understanding that every single person that died on the island of Tarawa was born as a normal person just like the rest of us. But stuff that they encountered in the society that they were born into and paths that they took led them, in the case of the Japanese, to be incredibly fanatical. And I think there's a lot of power in knowing that. Indeed. Yeah, I'm actually far more curious about this than I've ever been in my life up to this point. So I got some reading to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so what is a war game that doesn't exist, but should and that you'd like to play? Hmm. I would be really, really interested in a game that is focused on buildup and deterrence. So one of the things we talk about in the Cold War is the idea of forces not necessarily for strategic or operational objectives, but because if we have them, the enemy will be forced to spend resources or be afraid of this. Um, Arms races can be very negative and can lead to an explosion of war, but they can also lead to peace with the determination that, wow, we really don't want to mess with this. Or if you look at the naval side of World War I, which is not really a great example because that did help to lead, world, lead to World War I, but there is a very real problem of you got these powers that spend all this money on these dreadnoughts. And then they're reluctant to use them because they're so expensive that if they go down, the country loses so much face and you can't recover it from that. That is something to me that is really fascinating. And I've seen parts of it done in war games before, but I've never seen a war game that is entirely focused on it's got to be deterrence. I'm thinking something like the Twilight Struggle rules where if you actually go to war, everybody loses. 
uh, but then you remove that mechanic and have it otherwise about the buildup rather than the full diplomatic information, military economic that Twilight Struggle is. I have to say I would play that. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm wondering about this. So uh, talking about your design work for Tarawa was really interesting because I felt like you were really tapping at a human element that you didn't talk about when you were discussing your professional wargaming designs. Um, is that on purpose? Are there things that you think that hobby games are able to explore or express that a professional game can't? Do they have different emotional ranges? I think it's the nature of the specific game system in question. Uh, Warfighter is not a particularly realistic look at squad-based combat. It's very cinematic in nature, and when Dan, Sarah, or, uh, or Kevin talk about it, they even refer to the idea of the characters as actors, where a player soldier is the main character, a non-player soldier is his best friend, and the squad soldier is the guy in the background in the similar uniform. And the game plays very cinematically. I think that leads itself or lends itself to telling human experiences in a way that, man, this battle was really unpleasant or this thing was really hard. You know, I've uh, I've played similar things like I played the, the airborne expansions where one of the things that will happen is sometimes you will just lose people. The, the drop went bad. Somebody's down. What do you do? To me, while that's a gut punch, it's useful because it's dramatic. It explains, you know, you can see this on the movie where the three guys are talking to each other on the airplane and, you know, I'll see you at the bottom, Jocko, and they jump down and uh, Jocko's dead. What do you do? And it's, man, I like Jocko. He had the best stuff. He was, you know, he was my favorite guy. Uh, What do you do with that? How do you react? Where do you go? I don't think the defense games are very good about the individual human element. We, We generally don't do games that have a strong narrative bent. We do occasionally. Um, people will ask us for something specific that they want that is better told through a narrative. Again, that's kind of where you get the, the choose your own adventure style. But I don't think in general that's what's asked for. I would also say that there's a lot of war games that aren't particularly good about narrative. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of DVG is just about every DVG game paints a very vivid narrative. If you're playing Thunderbolt Apache Leader, if you're playing one of David Thompson's designs, if you're playing Warfighter, if you're playing any of these, at least when I play it, I always build a movie in my head because it's so hard not to. They've got great illustrations. They tell you what everything is about. And you get this idea of the Germans actually marching out of the forest inevitably towards Castle Itter while the defenders scramble to try to get to the right places in time and stop these guys. Oh, yeah. So is there a place for drama or at least entertainment value in a professional war game? I know that wouldn't be the priority because you're trying to answer a question, but you also want engagement. So do you strive consciously to put a fun factor in there or is that not a factor? So we do. It it is um, for us. Fun is Chrome, whereas in a commercial game, fun is why people are going to buy the game or not. Unless you're you know talking about Richard Berg's conflict for their campaign for North Africa. But for any game less complex than that, the the fun factor is what sells it. For us, the fun factor is usually something we iron on at the end or that we iron on because we find as we go through people like this. The fun factor is what gets people in the door and it's what gets people coming back. And this kind of goes back to what I originally said about concepts, that if you can't communicate a concept, it's not worth anything. If we hit five field-grade officers over the head with a very bulky and complex game with seven combat resolution tables, none of which are ever explained to them or ever make sense, and they kind of yawn through it as we sit in the background and endlessly roll dice, they're probably not going to come back to our game. 
unless our findings are really, really good. Whereas if we can get some kind of findings and also get a lot of player engagement and get everybody gets to feel that they have their agency and they have their time, we're much more likely to say, hey, yeah, let's let's hit up the Wargamers again. They could probably run something for us like this. And we've even had a couple folks say, like, I look forward to your games because they're more fun than sitting in meetings and building slideshows. Yeah. <laughs> so a, uh, a softball question to kind of start wrapping things up. What are you playing for fun right now? So right now, um, in terms of tabletop gaming, uh, I've got Kevin Bertram's Shores of Triple E set up, but I haven't actually managed to play it yet. And I feel bad because I've been trying to play it for like a month, but real life has gotten in the way. Um, I did break out last month. Uh, I did a, a quick Thunderbolt Apache leader campaign. It didn't go great. Um, I, I'm good at losing pilots, it turns out, when uh, when there's enemy SAM systems. Um, oh, no. Yeah, it, it's okay. I'll get them next time. And <laughs> then I usually I set up Warfighter from time to time just to play that solitaire because I really find that game system to be very engaging. Uh, for non-war games, the one that hits my table the most often, because um, my partner Vicky, she'll, she'll play this with me, is Unfair, which is by Good Games Incorporated, about uh, building a theme park. And came out about think 40 years ago at this point but it hits our table all the time because she likes it i like it it's uh it's mostly mostly build your own stuff with enough take that to keep things interesting so we like that game a lot and then for role-playing games i'm currently running a DD 5e campaign that runs uh once a week and i'm having a lot of fun with that all right. Uh, so I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and talk to me, talk to us. Um, you're a mysterious man. Is there anywhere that we can reach you if people have further questions or do you want not to be contacted? <laughs> uh, I don't mind being contacted. You can write me at philip.s.bolger at gmail.com. That is philip with one L. All right. And I can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Thank you so much, Phil, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Liz. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great to have you. And happy gaming, everybody.